You're listening to the sermon podcast from House for All Sinners and Saints. We are an Evangelical Lutheran Church in America congregation in Denver, Colorado, and you can find out more about us at www.houseforall.org. So uh, this week, I did a lot of scratching my head about the part of today's gospel where Jesus tells John the Baptist, blessed are those who are not offended by me. Jesus says stuff like this a lot in the gospels, to not be offended by him or not be ashamed of God. But until this week, I never really quite understood what it means to be ashamed of God. I thought it was an odd idea. Which is why I found it really hilarious that I was, as I was literally wrestling with these words, I got one of those weird messages on Facebook, one of those that said, if you're not ashamed of God, prove it by sending this message to 18 friends right now. And if you do, God will make one miracle happen today for you. Just one. <laughs> as curious as I was to test whether God was actually reading my Facebook posts. I I didn't take God up on the challenge. I've never much been a fan of what feels like religious gaslighting. It's like the whole point of these kinds of messages is to make us doubt our faith and then to feel shame and then to react out of that shame. It's bullying, plain and simple. And there's, there's, frankly, a lot of bullying going on these days, cyber and otherwise. Sometimes it feels like an epidemic, but not that it's anything really new, since bullying is just an aggressive form of shaming, and shame has always been with us. In the Gospels, Jesus is constantly seeking to drive out shame. He drives out shame from the woman caught in adultery, from the thief on the cross, from the woman, woman hemorrhaging for 12 years, and from the lepers on the edge of the city. So given Jesus' track record with shame, it would be weird if Jesus was shaming here John the Baptist into saying he wasn't offended by Jesus. Like, I can't see Jesus sending John one of those weird Facebook messages. Hey, John the Baptist, tell 18 of your friends that you're not ashamed of me and I'll give you a blessing. Like, that would be really weird. And it would be really insensitive of Jesus especially considering what John the Baptist was going through right at that moment. John was in prison after uh, experiencing, and he was experiencing that particular form of shame that comes from defeat. The feeling of shame you get after thinking you've done everything wrong, everything right, and yet your life still totally sucks. See, John was the epitome of the perfect prophet. He drew a really clear line between himself and the world that he was critiquing, and he preached a message of freedom and served those who felt defeated by the forces of empire. And yet, here he was, imprisoned and feeling utterly defeated by that same empire. And from that shame that comes from defeat, John begins to doubt whether or not Jesus is the Messiah. Is God really on John's side? Is his defeat a sign that the Messiah he is following is really just a fraud? 
You know, I've experienced a lot of these same feelings this year. The people and the causes I side with have generally not had the upper hand. And with each loss, I felt the demoralizing shame of being the loser. This week, it happened again. My friend and mentor, Paul Fromberg, who is the rector at my uh, home church, my Episcopal church in San Francisco, he was a finalist to become the next bishop of the Diocese of Los Angeles. The election was last Saturday. And for about 24 hours, all I could do was sit staring at my Twitter feed, waiting for the results. I was just certain that my guy had to be elected. And he almost was. At the end of seven grueling ballots, the whole diocese was split, 50% for Paul and 50% for another candidate. But on the eighth ballot, which was a total nail-biter, the tie was broken and Paul lost. I was devastated. My stomach was in knots and I began to once again feel that sense of shame that comes from defeat. Brene Brown defined shame as that intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Something we've experienced or done or failed to do makes us unworthy of connection. This, this, this kind of shame is one that I know many of you know very well. Uh, last week, Pastor Nadia asked us to post on the wall our obsessive thoughts that we'd like to be relieved from. And during open space, I read those posts, and they, they broke my heart. I read things like, I'm fat, I'm unlovable, I'm only good for sex, I'm not enough, I will never get a real job, I'm a terrible parent, I'm afraid no one will ever think I'm beautiful. I stood paralyzed in the face of all the shame that we carry, which is what shame does. It paralyzes us into a life limited by our fears of how we think others see us. Shame is exhausting and it's relentless. But the one who came to stop shame in its tracks is the one who is coming into the world Right now, in this season of Advent, Jesus Christ. You know, after a year of wrestling over and over with the shame that comes from defeat, I'm beginning to wonder if when Jesus says for us not to be ashamed by him, I'm wondering if he means to say, I, the Lord of heaven and earth, have no part in the shame game. And I invite you to walk away from it too. I'm wondering if he's telling us that though the world has taught us that defeat is a cause for shame, defeat is no cause for shame in the kingdom of God. Because time and time time again in the scriptures, the things that cause us shame are in fact the very places where the Spirit of God breaks into our lives. But when we cling to shame, when we are sure that shame and defeat are the final word, we have no bandwidth left to be curious about what God might be up to in our brokenness. 
After all, Christ is the God who broke into this world from a fracture in Mary, his mother's life. A fracture that we would expect to be filled with shame. Mary, an unwed but engaged teenage girl, becomes pregnant. And and though it was by no fault of her own, I'm sure that the engines of shame kicked into high gear in Nazareth that day. Like if my sister told me she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit, I'd be like, good one. (laughs) (laughs) Try again, Sarah. (laughs) But in the place of shame, Mary brings hope. Hope that we heard in her song that we call the Magnificat, that we just sang, my soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. From this day, all generations will call me blessed. He has filled the hungry with good things. He has lifted up the lowly. He has come to the help of his servant Israel. He has remembered his promise of mercy. The hope that Mary's song offers us in the place of shame isn't some Pollyanna-ish denial of reality. It's a hope built on experience, on the experience of the people of Israel, where time and time again God rose out of the cracks in their lives, cracks that we usually rush to cover up with shame. Through the collective experience of her faith, God gave Mary the gift of knowing that when shame starts to bubble up, that we're better served if we start being curious rather than ashamed. Because shame shuts us down and blinds us to the creative ways that God uses the cracks in our lives, but curiosity slows us down and gives us the chance to see how God is making beauty out of what we find shameful and unbearable. This curiosity is faith. And through the gift of faith, Mary's mind had been shaped by the God of Israel so that by the time the angel delivered the news, Mary didn't run away in shame, but was prepared to sit and wait and be curious about what God was up to. Now, I'm a little bit different from Mary. I'm a little bit slow on the uptake. So despite all my experience of seeing God actually break through the cracks in my life, I often fall back into my old ways of thinking, like when I felt that shame for my friend Paul after he lost the election. But God keeps working on me and keeps breaking through. For example, later in the week, I got a text from Joshua Smith saying that I had to listen to Paul's sermon that he gave the day after he lost the election. Josh told me that it was beautiful, which gave me just enough curiosity to take a break from wallowing in that shame of defeat. So still with that knot in my stomach, I I listened to the sermon, and what I heard totally undid me. Paul said that while he and John Taylor, the other candidate for up for election, while they were waiting on the final results, they sat beside each other and held hands. I found that amazing. Up to that point, you know, I was pretty angry at the Holy Spirit, maybe even a little bit ashamed. I thought, if my guy didn't win, I was, I was having a hard time seeing how God was at work. But hearing that two opponents in a contentious election could hold hands 
in that moment of tension, in a moment potentially riddled with shame for the loser. That made me curious. Just curious, just curious enough once again to stop and think about what God is up to. And for that, I give thanks to God. Amen. Amen.